Well, good morning. I'd like to thank you all and commend you all for coming out on this extremely cold morning. I know if, I, uh, if I'm being honest, I probably would have rather stayed in bed where it was warm and not have driven all the way up here. Um, so I, I'm glad that all of you opposed that urge in yourselves as well and came together to meet with the family of God, the church, to worship our Lord and Savior this morning. So if you remember from last week, uh, I asked us to consider doing three things uh, as we go through this Ephesians series together, uh, three things to kind of prepare us, prepare our hearts, and prepare our minds for this sermon series. Do we remember what those three things are? Did we do them? The first one was what? Read it. Read a chapter every day, or just read the entire book in one week. It fits really well to do a chapter. Uh, fits really well to do a chapter every every day for a week, uh, or maybe you just want to sit down and read it. If you if you did that, I'd be really interested in hearing from you. Come up to me after and say, "Hey, I read it. Um, you know, I used this Bible version. I did." Maybe you just sat down and read it. Maybe you listened to it. I'm, I'm not sure what you did, but come up and and tell me what you did. And I'm going to, going to encourage each one of you who did that, do that again this week and change it up a little bit. Try a different version, try listening to it, ask a friend to read it to you, maybe try reading it out loud. Try doing something to you know, change it up a little bit. And if you didn't read Ephesians this past week, I'm going to once again encourage you to read Ephesians this coming week, uh, to let Ephesians as a book really permeate into our souls. The second thing was to watch the Bible Project video online. It's a nine-minute thing. I get that not everyone in this room is technologically literate, and if that's something that's beyond your capabilities, I understand. Um, but if, you, if you're able to, I would encourage some of you to you know, log on the internet, visit our Facebook page, watch the Bible Project video. Uh, it's a really quick nine-minute overview of the book of Ephesians. And the third thing that I encourage us all to do, uh, this is something that each one of us can do, uh, is to pray as we look at the book of Ephesians, right? We're going to be looking at some things that we really agree with, some, some theology that may, that may resonate really, really well with our soul. We're also going to be looking as we go through this sermon series, we'll be looking at some things that convict us a little bit, some things that are a little bit more hard to swallow. And so I would encourage every single one of you, pray that God uses his word as I, as I preach his word, that God allows it to convict our hearts, to encourage our hearts, that God works in and through us during this sermon series. So I'm going to once again encourage you to do those three things. And again, if you, if you did read Ephesians this past week, tell me afterwards. I would love to hear about that. On to baseball, as most sermons should begin. The 2013 Houston Astros, or more specifically, from the stretch of seasons from 2011 to 2013, the Houston Astros were one of the worst teams in baseball. They totaled 56, 55, and 51 wins in each season, respectively. Uh, they finished last place in their division every single year. Uh, it was the worst stretch by any baseball team uh, for, since... The beginning, or since before World War II, with the exception, of course, of the early 2000s Detroit Tigers with Bobby Higginson. Um, so that, that team was worse, but the Houston Astros were one of the worst in history. At the end of 2013, heading into the 2014 season, the club went through a mentality shift. 
You see, most teams in any sport, their goal is to do something this year. Their goal is to make the playoffs. Their goal is to win the World Series. It's to qualify for the Champions League. It's to finish with a winning record. It's to do, do, it's to do something, but to accomplish something this year. The Houston Astros kind of punted that a little bit. They said, hey, we don't have a goal for this year. Instead, we're going to look a few years down the line, and we're going to build for them. The Houston Astros in 2014, they weren't much better than they were in the previous year, few years. They were better. Um, I think they finished fourth out of five in their division. But in June of that year, Sports Illustrated ran a piece that said the Houston Astros are going to win the World Series in 2017. Three years down the line, this team that was bad and had moved into a little bit of mediocrity, they're going to win the World Series, and they predicted it. The reason was because the Houston Astros stopped trying to build something every year. They had a plan for the near future. They said, we're going to stack all of our chips, not on this year, but on three years down the line. So they invested in young talent. They invested in some veteran talent. So that's, that's where we lost Justin Verlander to. We lost him to the Houston Astros. And sure enough, in the fall of 2017, the Houston Astros, just a few years after one of the worst stretches in baseball, the Houston Astros won the World Series because they had a plan. They stepped back and they said, we are going to execute this plan. We're not going to be distracted by the temporary or the near term. We're going to look a few years down the road. We're going to execute a plan, and that plan paid off. A little bit of luck to be sure, but it paid off. Long-term plans tend to be uncommon at the absence of short-term plans. Uh, most sports teams, as we've talked about, just have a really short-term plan. The goal is to do something this season. Some businesses may have a five-year, a 10-year, a 20-year plan. People, individuals, may have a lifetime plan. I want to accomplish these things by the end of my life. Some businesses, some organizations may have a 100-year plan. Right? Where does this organization want to be in 100 years? I, I tried Googling for some organizations that had a 100-year plan. I didn't find any. I wish that I did. Um, but it, it would be wise for some organizations to do that, to say, when everyone who works for this company is retired or dead, where are we going to be? What are we going to be known for? But in terms of plans, that's really as long as it gets. Except the passage that we're going to be looking at this morning talks about a plan of God that is much bigger than that. It's a plan that lasts for all eternity. And this plan is fleshed out, it's explained in our passage this morning, in Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, just a fun Greek fact for you, because everyone loves a fun Greek fact. This is the longest sentence, or one of the longest sentences, in the Greek Bible. This is just one sentence the entire way through. And if you're going to diagram everything out, and I don't recommend that you do that, you can if you're really nerdy and really bored, but if you're going to look at it and kind of boil it down to the core sentence, what is, what is the main thing that Paul's trying to get across, we have just the first little clause in Ephesians 1.3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the main thing. Everything else in this passage flows from that main sentence. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the question is asked, just kind of automatically, why? 
Why should we praise God? Well, because the second half of verse 3, he has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. We should praise God because he has blessed us with every single spiritual blessing in Christ. And the rest of the passage goes on to talk about what that looks like. It talks about the plan of God that he had from before the foundation of the world to bless us in Christ. So as we go through our sermon this morning, we're going to look at a few different aspects of this plan. We are going to look at the scope of God's plan. How big is God's plan? We are going to look at the content of God's plan. What does God's plan actually entail? What is its purpose? And we're also going to look at the accomplishment of God's plan. As we move throughout human history, What does it actually look like for this plan to be executed? What does that look like in time? What does that look like for our lives? But first, quickly, let's look at the scope of God's plan. The Houston Astros had a three-year plan. Many businesses and organizations have a five, ten, or twenty-year plan. God has an eternal plan. This plan began before the foundation of of the world. Think about that. We know that God created the heavens and the earth. That's the first verse in the Bible. But there was a time when nothing existed. There was a time when there was no time. There was no space. There was nothing but the eternal, infinite God in communion with himself. And God instituted a plan for the entirety of human history, all of time, all of space, everything that exists, he created a plan for it before the foundation of the world. We see this in verse number four. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. This wasn't a plan that God hatched after you know, he was thrown off a little bit by Adam and Eve's sin. This is something that God had planned from the very beginning before there was even time. And this is a plan that culminates in the fullness of time. Verse number 10. This plan is to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment. There will come a time when every empire as we know it crumbles into dust. There may come a time where the United States ceases to exist. There may be a time where our nation is forgotten. However long the times go of human history, however many millennia we have left to live in, in, this, in these last days before Christ comes back, when all of those times are fulfilled, God's plan will be accomplished. God has a plan for all of human history, from before the foundation of the world till the point where everything is completed, till the point where empires are made dust and everyone glorifies Christ. The entire scope of human history falls under God's plan. All of human existence, all of time and space falls under the plan of God. That's the scope of God's plan. But what's the content of God's plan? What's the purpose behind this? Well, the purpose is, according to verse number 10 once again, to unite all things in Christ. The second half of verse number 10 reads, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. The Greek word behind this, and I normally don't like dragging out Greek words, um, but the Greek word behind uh, bring unity to all things 
It's a really long Greek word. It's kind of made up of a few different words, but one of the words in the middle of it is head. The Greek word is kephale. To bring all things under the headship of Christ. And if you've been reading Ephesians, that, that word headship is probably going to stick out to you. It shows up a number of times through this book. But this is part of God's plan, to bring everything under the headship of Christ, to unite all things in Christ. I read an article in the Washington Post um, a few weeks ago. I believe it was published over Thanksgiving. There was a man, he, he had lizards. I believe they were lizards. And in order to feed lizards, you got to order weird food for them, right? Uh, so he ordered online a box of crickets. So just, just a giant box with, I don't know how many crickets in it. Let's say I had a thousand crickets in it. And these crickets were going to be food for his lizards for, for the coming weeks. He orders this box and it shows up to him. And he didn't open it right. So like there was you know an opening that you had to get the crickets out one by one, I guess. And he, he opened the box actually upside down. So he opens this box. And when you open a box of crickets... That's about it, right? Like, there's no undoing that action. The crickets are going to jump out. The cricket, you know, crickets are a being that they love, you know, kind of dark cracks and crevices. So all of these hundreds of crickets spread throughout this guy's house, hide because that's what they do. And it's, you know, basically just uh, an Egyptian plague in this guy's house of his own doing. He has crickets everywhere. Adam and Eve sin, hear me out. Adam and Eve sins kind of like undoing all of those crickets. Adam and Eve opened a box that cannot be unopened. They got crickets everywhere. Sin and death entered the world. And try as we might, we can't undo all things. All these, all this sin and this death that Adam and Eve brought into the world. So when scripture says that God's plan is to unite all things under the headship of Christ... I picture, you know, Jesus Christ being the one to put all the crickets back in the box. He takes all of these things that are spread out, all of this disorder, all of this chaos that has been introduced into the world by Adam and Eve, even though Adam and Eve were supposed to bring order and chaos to the world, they failed in their duties. But Christ is going to be the one who unites all things in himself. He's going to bring order to this world. He's going to get all of the crickets in the box. God's plan for the fullness of time, when everything is done, at that time, at the end of all things, when every tear is wiped away, when God's throne is on this earth, everything will be united under the headship of Christ. One of the things, one of the sub-themes, perhaps, of the book of Ephesians uh, about the headship of Christ is that God has created a community of believers to live under God's headship. We're going to talk a lot more about this in the coming weeks, but I want to read to you the end of this chapter, just, just the last two verses. And God placed all things under his, that's Christ's feet, and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. If you've been reading through the book of Ephesians, you'll see, or you'll remember in verse or chapter 4, that the church, once again, is the body of Christ. And we're to grow up into the maturity of our head, which is Jesus. If you read chapter 5, you'll see that sort of the marriage relationship between a husband and wife should mirror that between Christ and the church. 
the church living under the headship of Christ. This is a theme that shows up throughout all of the book of Ephesians. So that even as we look forward to the one day when everything will be united under the headship of Christ, we acknowledge the reality now that the church is united here and now under the headship of Christ. There's sort of a paradox. There's going to be something that's going to come later. Everything will one day be united under Christ. And the church is the body of believers under the headship of Christ here and now. So that's the first half of the content of God's plan. But the ultimate purpose of God's plan is found a few different times throughout this passage. This plan is just to bring praise to his glory. Verse number six, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. Verse number 12, that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. Verse number 14, until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. To the praise of God's glory, to the praise of God's glory, to the praise of God's glory. This plan that God has instituted for the fullness of time, at the end of all things, when all things are united under the headship of Christ, all of this is done to bring glory to God. At the end of all things, we won't have anything to boast about. The only thing that we will have to boast in is what God has done for us. We will look back on all of human history on that day when we stand perfect and entire before the throne of God. We will look back on all of the things that God has done and we can't help or we won't be able to help but praise God for what he has done. Praise God for working out all things for good, for working out all things to his glory. We will look at the radiance of God. We will look at all of the works of God in the world and we will praise him for what he has done. I want to point out what may look like a contradiction in, these, in, this, uh, in this point. So it looks like in this passage, the purpose of this is to bring praise and glory to God, right? We just, we just talked about that. God is doing this to bring praise to himself, but he's also doing this for our benefit. Right? He's, he's blessing us with all of these spiritual blessings in Christ. And we're going we're gonna to look in, de- in depth in a little bit at what all of those blessings are. So at first it may seem like there's a contradiction there. Like those two things kind of, they don't really fit well together. Is God doing this for us or is God doing this for him? The reality is that God, that there's not, there's not really a difference between those two things. God brings glory to himself by blessing us in Christ. God brings glory to himself by creating a community of believers under the headship of Christ. God brings glory to himself by fixing the order or the disorder and chaos in the universe brought into this world by Adam and Eve, by undoing our sin. Those two things aren't opposed to each other. Those two things are the same thing. And at the end of all things, when everything is united under the headship of Christ, when our sins are forgiven, when we stand in glory with God, we will bring praise and honor to his name because of what he has done for us. So we see the scope of God's plan. 
It's eternal. It's grand. It lasts for all of human history. The content of God's plan to unite all things in Christ, to create a community of believers under God's headship, and to bring praise to his glory. And finally, we see the accomplishment of God's plan. There's a lot here, so we're going to kind of we're going to kind of hit the highlights as we go through this passage. Uh, but if you, if you look at this passage, um, Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, it's kind of divided up into three sections. We already saw how there's three utterances of to the praise of his glory, right? If we, if we look at each one of those utterances, they come after a section about each member of the Trinity. So the first little section, it talks about the Father's work. The Father's work in, uh, in the foundation of this plan. He is the one who elects us and predestines us before the foundation of the world. The second section ta- is about Christ. It's about the one who makes provision for the accomplishment of this plan. And once again, that section ends with a, with a doxology to his praise and his glory. And it ends with the Holy Spirit, the one who actually works out this plan, the one who actually accomplishes it. And it ends once again to the praise of his glory. And we're just going to kind of look at each one of those sections one by one. First, in verse number four, he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. For adoption to sonship. Adoption is one of those things uh, that I've always been fascinated with. Uh, and if, if any of you have been adopted or, or have adopted someone yourselves, I'd be, I'd be very interested in knowing that story. Come and, come and t- share that with me. Talk to me about it. But adoption is just one of those holy and good things that Christians can do. I, um, I had a friend who adopted a, a child from the city of Detroit. Uh, I didn't get his permission to share this story, so I'm just going to call him Rick. Uh, but Rick lives in a very, very white, very homogenous rural community, and he adopted a, a black son. And I say that only to say this. Rick gets a lot of questions about adoption because you see his son and you say, oh, he's adopted, right? So Rick entertains a lot of really, really stupid questions about his adoption. One of, one of the things that annoys Rick the most is when people say something like, oh, does your son know his real parents? Does your son know his real parents? And Rick is always taken aback at this. Because Rick says, I am his real parents. His, my wife and I, his mother and I, are his real parents. The fact that he is adopted does not make him any less of a real son. That is what adoption is. It's taking someone who is not your child and making them your child. We don't live in a day and age where rights and titles and inheritances are as much of a big deal. But in ancient Roman society, when this was being written, adoption was a huge deal because inheritances and titles and everything was a big deal. If you had adopted a child and then later on you tried to write them out of the will, that would just be treated the same thing or the same way as trying to write your own son out of the will. It just wasn't done. You couldn't do it. Because when you adopt a child, they get every single right every single privilege of being your child. And when we are adopted in Christ, we get every single privilege 
of being a child of God. That is how we get all of these riches poured out on us in Christ. We receive the full blessing of God. We are not a child of the devil anymore. As Paul writes about in Ephesians chapter 2, we are God's children. Let me ask you this question. If you're going to adopt a child, on what basis is that child chosen? Right? I know adoptions aren't, aren't done like this, but, but picture walking into an orphanage. You know, there, there's a series of children, all who have needs to be adopted. If you're going to adopt a child, you have to go in and you're going to get one, right? If you're going to adopt a child, that means there are some children who you do not adopt. And that's a reality that Paul deals with here. We are adopted in Christ. Because we are adopted in Christ, that means God chooses us, which logically means that there are some who God does not choose. The basis of God's choosing is not anything that we have done. It's not that God looked down through human history and said, hey, that one is going to believe in me, so I'm going to adopt them in Christ. No, the basis of this is just God's will. Verse number five, in love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. At the beginning of human history, before time itself existed, God chose those who would be adopted in Christ. And I know this doctrine sometimes, this doctrine of election, of predestination, it can be a stumbling block for some Christians. I don't want to spend too long on this this morning. If that's, if that's something that you need to talk about, just let me know and I'll buy you coffee and we'll, we'll talk through this. But know, know this. We cannot look into the mind of God and comprehend it. God has his own purposes, his own ways that are unknown to us. And we know that God will do according to his will, in love. And at the end of all things, it will result in God's praise and God's honor. And we will look back and say, what God did was good. We also have no cause to boast. Because we know that God didn't choose us because of what we have done. God chose us purely because of his will. Purely because he desired to choose us. And because of that, we give God honor and glory and praise. So that's the, work, that's the work of God in salvation. Next, we look at what Christ has done. Verse number seven, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. Most of us have grown up in church. We're familiar with the idea of sacrifices in the Old Testament. When someone in the Old Testament times would sin, in order to be right with God, they would have to bring a bull, a goat, a sheep to the temple. They would have to sacrifice that. And the, the imagery there was that the blood of this animal would cover their sins so that they could once again be right with God. But that was not a once-for-all offering. Every time they sinned against God, they had to bring another animal to the temple. And they did this over and over and over. Christ functions for us as that offering. He died once for all. 
We don't have to keep sacrificing Christ again. We don't have to keep having penance for our sin in order to be right with God. Christ paid the price for us. He suffered, not for any sins that he did, but for the sins that we did. His blood offers forgiveness and pardon for the sins that we have done. So even though every single one of us is a sinner, every single one of us has a sin nature that try as, try as hard as we want to, we really can't overcome in this life. Even though every single one of us deserves punishment from God, we know that Jesus Christ took that punishment for us. We have redemption through his blood. We have forgiveness of sins. When we get to that last day, despite all of the sin that's deep inside our hearts, despite all of those things that we know that we've done, even if other people don't know that we've done them, all of those deep things, those dark things, every single one of those sins, for those who are in Christ, for those who believe, every single one of those sins is forgiven because of the blood of Christ. Not only do we have redemption and forgiveness of sins by the blood of Christ, but we also have an inheritance through the unification of all things, right? Everything on heaven and on earth will be united in the person of Jesus Christ. And so we have an inheritance with Christ poured out on us. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. Because of, because of what Christ has done for us, because Christ is uniting all things together, because Christ as the Son of God has the eternal riches of the Father poured out on him, so we who are united to Christ have those riches with Christ as well. Finally, we see the work of the Holy Spirit who is accomplishing this plan of God in the world. When you believed, verse number, four, uh, verse number 13, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are in God's possession. There's two imageries here used of the Holy Spirit. The first is that of a seal. Not a seal as in like the land mammal that, you know, is cute and rubbery and swims around in like the Antarctic. Not, not that kind of seal. But a seal was used um, back in the olden times, right? Before email, before letters, before any of that was a thing. If you wanted to guarantee the authenticity of a letter, you did it with a seal, right? If a king was sending a letter to one of his lords, right? He didn't want to deliver it himself, but he also didn't want it to be, you know, opened or anything like that. He didn't want it to be tampered with. So the king had a seal on his ring. And there was only one of those. They, they didn't duplicate them. So they would get some hot wax and they would, you know, put it on the letter and seal the letter and he would take his ring and press it into the letter and then he would send it to one of his couriers who would take it to, take it to his lord and, and they would, and that was how they sent the letter. And when that letter was received from the king and it still had the seal intact, it came with a mark of authenticity that that was a genuine letter from the king. It hadn't been tampered with, hadn't been interfered with. He knew that that letter had come from whom he said it came from. The second illustration here is, is something that's a little bit more familiar to us, is a deposit. It's a down payment, 
right? If I want to go buy a car from someone and I don't have the full amount of money, right? I'm buying it on a Thursday and I get paid on a Friday, but I really want this car. I give the guy a couple hundred bucks and I say, hey, this is a down payment. Save the car from me for me. And when I get paid on Friday, I will, you know, I'll come and I'll write you a check for the full amount. It's a down payment. It guarantees that I will receive what I have paid for. The Holy Spirit is a guarantee for us. He is the one working in our lives at this moment. Right, we're going to read through the book of Ephesians, and we're going to see what it means to live lives that are marked out by the Holy Spirit. And just because we're living lives that are marked out by the Holy Spirit doesn't mean that all things are united in Christ yet. That's something that's going to happen at the fullness of time. But the Holy Spirit is at work in us right now as a down payment, a guarantee of the things that are to come, God's holy seal on our lives, so that we know that everything will be redeemed in Christ. We will know that we can stand forgiven on that last day. We know that all things will be united under the headship of Christ. One commentator I read said it this way. He said, the Holy Spirit is a little bit of heaven in us right now with a guarantee of a lot more to come. The Holy Spirit is at work in our lives as proof that one day we will stand complete on the day of Jesus Christ. So this is God's plan. God is creating a community of believers to live under the headship of Jesus Christ. He's doing this by predestining some to adoption from before the foundation of the world. He's doing this by, uh, re by redeeming people and forgiving them in Christ because of his blood. He's doing this by sealing people with the Holy Spirit when they believe. By offering us salvation, Christ is accomplishing his plan, and he's doing this all for the praise of his glory. So we see that we have been blessed in Christ according to God's eternal plan to glorify himself. We have truly, according to verse number three, we have truly received every spiritual blessing from the heavenly realms in Christ. In God's plan, he has not held anything back from us. We experienced redemption where we deserved none. We experienced adoption where we should have remained children of the devil. We receive the down payment of the Holy Spirit when we should be lost in our sins. And the proper response for all of this, that God has not abandoned this world, that God is uniting all things in Christ, that God is offering us salvation and redemption in Christ Jesus, forgiveness of sins, the proper response to this, to this blessing, is to just turn around and praise God. One of the interesting things I found as I was studying for this sermon is that the word praise in verse number three, uh, at least translated in the NIV, and the word blessed, so it's praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing. Those words are the same word. The Greek word just kind of has two different meanings. So we are to praise God or we are to bless God. Those are the same thing because of how God has blessed us. We give God blessing because God has blessed us. And so we as a community of believers, as we gather together, we are the ones 
who are in Christ. We are the ones who have experienced redemption through the blood of Christ. We are the ones who have forgiveness. And it's not of anything that we have done, but it's purely by God's mercy and by God's grace for the praise of his glory. So the appropriate response to all of this is to turn around and praise God. Praise God for what he has done in Christ. Praise God that he is great. Praise God that he is above all things. Praise God that he is sovereign from before all time began. Sovereign to create a plan. Sovereign to unite all things in Christ. Sovereign to give us forgiveness. Sovereign to redeem all things. Let us praise God because of what he has done for us in Christ. Will you pray with me?